1: I love scotch. I love scotch.
0: Scotch is scotch scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm. mess with me, I'm one crazy moofoo.
2: Hi, this is William Oskrander, and I'm a big fan of Crazy Train Radio. Please tune in and hear our podcast and others like it.
0: Hey, folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele.
1: And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles.
0: Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest is probably best known as the school bully, Buddy Rupperton, in the 1983 film classic, Christine. But also, I should say, between talking with him and doing some homework, this man has been, I would say, worldly because he has done other things, but also has a unique athletic background, as you can tell with his build. We're taping us on video, and he still got a nice frame to him from the position I could sit. But two things that stood out for me was that he has a black belt in Taekwondo and Aikido. So let's go ahead and welcome William Ostrander. And since you just asked me before I started with the introduction, is it William, Bill? How would you like me to address
2: you? Well, uh, thanks, Jonathan. And uh, Bill is fine. Yeah, my legal name is William, but uh, I go by Bill.
0: Okay, I uh, only uh, like to be respectful and ask. So, with that being said, I do yeah you know, was listening to some previous conversations you have done, and obviously mm-hmm. doing some reading and such. Since we talking, we're talking about health and fitness there for a second. Uh, taekwondo and Aikido. What led you to liking the art form of karate and the different disciplines of it?
2: Well, is Hopkido. what i study as opposed to aikido and i was a wrestler in high school and then i got into mixed martial arts after those those disciplines but i actually decided to do that when i was doing a movie um where i was playing a second lieutenant in the army and i just wanted to go through the process of discipline in that kind of form if that makes sense because i mean you know essentially any of the martial arts were based on uh, a certain discipline and a regiment with other people and so uh, I chose to do that. And I have just always enjoyed combat sports. I've always enjoyed enjoyed one-on-one competition. So I like, uh, <clears throat> I love to spar, love, love, love to spar. And uh, I like debate. Uh, I, I, I like wrestling. I, I've just always enjoyed that. I I even like, uh, you know, uh, weightlifting, not because I, I wanted to get big or something like that. I, I just like that mental challenge of weightlifting because you have to push yourself and i think that's what's really one of the more exhilarating things about any of those kinds of sports is just the the mental game of it it's true in any sport but somehow it's just you and you don't have any excuses it's you know hey i threw the guy the ball and he didn't catch it no that's not there or you know i i i did my part but the other guy didn't know if you fail it's you it's on you if you win yes. it's on you you know and i i've always liked that sort of grit if you will ever i have a lot of admiration for people that have that grit
0: and you know i'm the same way we didn't have amateur wrestling in the high school i went to but went on later on worked out with like the college team just to deal with the keep in shape and taekwondo and whatnot and grappling at you know just stuff to keep my mind sharp because of the disciplines and stuff as well mm-hmm. but did you say there you were in the military
2: no, I was in a film called uh, Red Heat, uh, okay. starring Linda Blair yeah. and myself. And it took place in West uh, West Germany during a period of time when Germanys were still split. Yes. You know, not it... historically they were split. It wasn't when we made the movie, but at that time it was. So uh, at the time of the story, it was. So uh, I played a second lieutenant in the army in that. And I wanted just to go through that discipline as just my own mental training for the for the role you know trying to understand the character better
0: okay yeah i was going to bring up that film when we get to that part but i was just confirming because we happen to be taping this on veterans day and i was going to say happy veterans day if you were in the service but for those who will hear this if you were in the service of some kind thank you and we do love and appreciate you guys for giving us the freedoms we have but back to you sir i am curious to know and like i said i was doing a lot of reading and stuff and we'll get to the movie stuff shortly but you are currently a farmer correct are you still in the farming game what what type of um, farming do you do
2: well i i raised uh um... A, a type of beef cattle called a Dexter which is um, what do they call a heritage breed animal and uh, I had the largest herd of Dexter cattle in the central coast of California. Uh, I sold those a few years ago when we were in the midst of a drought and I was running for office and I didn't have enough time to really be a good manager and do a good job of it so you know largely there's a distinction between ranching and farming and farming is what you use do on the east side of the Mississippi River and the west side we call it ranching um, so basically my my farming or agricultural interests were uh, predominantly in raising hay uh, and uh, and and grass-fed cattle
0: now with that because I, I don't know much about this, but with that particular style of cattle that you were talking about there, yeah. what makes them different compared to, you know, because I just think cows are cows and the layman's term in me, or the basic understanding, but what makes those different than other breeds?
2: Well, that's a, a larger conversation, but if essentially the difference between a dexter cattle and a, say an Angus, everybody knows what Angus cattle look like. Yeah. They've got a very good publicity campaign with their, uh, with their organization. So, um, a dexter cow looks like an Angus cow only much smaller. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's just anthropologists believe that cattle would have been the size of dexter cattle were it not for man's intervention to make them bigger, bigger, and bigger and the, the difference is is that uh, uh, a smaller cow like a dexter is more efficient on hillsides where we have to graze our cows because you're not burning up so much energy moving 1500 pounds up and down a hill or a thousand pounds up and down a hill you're moving a much smaller animal uh, also because there are genetic bottlenecks in most of the agricultural industry whether that's in dairy cows uh, beef cattle poultry um, uh, pork or even in racehorses, you know, in this country, uh, because all thoroughbred racehorses have to be bred with what they call live cover. There's only, you can trace all the thoroughbred racehorses in this country, born in this country, back to just three Arabian stallions, just three. So there's, we have a genetic bottlenecking going on this based on a commercial application of those animals. Um, Another example would be, you know, like Holstein cattle, the black and whites that everybody thinks of as the dairy cattle. Well, in my grandfather's day, most people didn't have uh, just black and white cattle. They had Ayrshire, Guernsey, Brown, Swiss, uh, Jersey. They had all the of other kinds of breeds because at that time, milk was paid for on this cream content, on this fat content. And then they changed it and suddenly it was paid on 100 pounds of, of total weight. Well, Holstein cows don't put as much butterfat in their milk, but they produce a lot more. So now we have uh, a situation where Most Holstein cows in this country can have their lineage traced back to just 12 cow families. And you probably know from your days in high school biology that when you get a bottleneck like that, that leaves the whole species vulnerable to disease or to something that can go wrong. And there isn't enough genetic diversity to help them push past that. So you risk whole um, food lines or, or, or animal lines and so forth in overinvesting in a specific type of animal simply because the market is geared for that type of animal's production. And dexter cattle, being a smaller animal, are not favored typically by your larger producers that wanna turn them out into you know, a desert area out here, a pasture area, and let them graze by themselves on a thousand acres, or to be put into a, a confined animal feeding operation, a CAFO, where they're gonna get six weeks of grain. So a Dexter cow was a much better choice for us because it worked on hillsides. Uh, they were much safer. They were easier on fences, uh, and also because they would allow me to direct market that beef, and it wouldn't overwhelm one person's freezer because they were just smaller. So it had a marketable advantage for me on top of some of the uh, the uh, heritage characteristics and and the uh, genetic bottlenecking that goes on in some of the other breeds.
0: Now, obviously, folks who listen to us know I like to go in-depth and do my homework and such. But with that being said, you mentioned you ran for office as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, as part one of the things you talked about, and we'll get into the other in a second here. But were you involved with immigration reform for folks who work in agriculture as well as can you explain what I was reading about? capture carbon when it comes to farming?
2: Um, uh, yeah, sorry, I thought I misheard you there. You're, t- you're talking about uh, 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 farming uh, uh, has an enormous part in our carbon production in, in the world. Approximately 35% of our carbon output uh, comes from agricultural uh, means. And one of the things that we need to do is to sequester carbon because we have you know the production of Uh, of carbon, but we also have what we call legacy carbon, meaning that if we stopped driving all gas vehicles and producing all fossil fuels uh, today, we would still have an excess amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And we need to take that out of the atmosphere and put it into something. And the oceans are full of carbon. The atmosphere is full of carbon, but the one area that needs carbon and that is a large bank for carbon is the soils. So we call that sequestering carbon through agriculture, meaning using agricultural techniques to draw the carbon out of the air and put it into the soil where it can be put of use. It's actually a, an, an essential component of agricultural production, of plant growth, et cetera, et cetera. So I was a part of that process or am part of that process of trying to promote um, more agricultural engagement in In dealing with climate change and and carbon capture. And some of the new bills that are coming out now are starting to find ways to monetize uh, capturing carbon uh, for farmers, because they're actually doing uh, a benefit for us.
0: Now, with that being said, and then we can jump onto this visa I heard you discussing when running for office. But obviously, part of that discussion that I've heard recently has been like solar power and just trying to move away from where we were for years and years and generations. But what are your thoughts on where we stand now with, you know, solar power and trying to change where we are from where we were?
2: Well, what people don't really consider is, is that typically utilities or or our energy sources are monetized and captured, captured and then monetized by a small group of people that profit from that. And if you want to understand what some, you know, somebody's motivation is, you always look for their self-interest. So there has been a strong pushback uh, or against climate change or the, what we need to do in climate change because there's a self-interest involved, a monetary self-interest involved. But when you look at uh, energy production, the sun puts out every day twenty-two thousand times more energy than all of the other forms of energy that we use combined, 22,000 times, imagine that. So it's also free. Now, there are components to capture that energy, and that there's a certain value in that. And solar uh, is one of those things where we have the opportunity to capture that energy and apply it, and I think we need to make more and more efforts to do so. Uh, are we ready to go completely to alternative energies? No, we, we aren't. And we're still finding that a huge percentage of the world, or I shouldn't say huge, but a, a significant number of people in the world are still without electricity, still without any types of energy to help, uh, help them in their daily lives. And you see a lot of developing countries that are pushing uh, just to get their their rural communities electrified, and that means coal-fired plants and gas-fired plants and things like that. And it's very difficult to tell them no, you can't have that, especially when Americans consume so much power. But America needs to lead the way, I think, with uh, capturing carbon and techniques to do that, because we have the technology to help develop those new means of collecting energy and then when we develop them they eventually become cheaper and then the other developing countries can take those new forms of collecting energy and and utilize them but it would be very hard for example to go into uh, sub-saharan africa where they've got an abundance of sun and tell them hey you can't have an electric or i mean a coal-fired plant uh be you know right now because we just we haven't developed the the means either the economic means or this or the the structures to, um, to give them what we have and what we take for granted on a daily basis.
0: So let's bring that back on the home front here, if we can. And this is, I would say above my pay grade, but with trying to make the positive changes with solar energy and everything else that we're still trying to develop and everything that you said there, what can say the individuals such as myself or yourself or whoever might hear this try to do to help move that along in a positive front?
2: Uh, well, you know, one of the simple things is, uh, sounds funny, but plant a tree, you know, plant some vegetation, take something that helps take the carbon out of the air, um, where it is, where it makes sense, uh, put on solar panels, where it makes sense, buy an electric car, Um, you know, for me, I I have a Chevy Volt in addition to a one-ton dually truck. That one-ton dually truck is something that I used to have as my daily driver. And I used it for farming and for uh, construction and other types of business. And it was a necessary vehicle for me. But there came a point where I didn't need to drive it all the time. And it it was certainly time to put it in the barn and not use it And now I drive this Volt, and even though, you know, my vanity kind of likes being in a big vehicle, likes being in a truck and all that kind of stuff, I don't like going to the gas station. I don't know about you, but $5 (laughs) a gallon fuel is not really my idea of a good time. So my Volt, I drive, I come home, I plug it in, and then I take off and unplug it, take off, drive someplace. I never stop at a gas station. So I hate driving my truck now just because, you know, I'm much more aware of the pollution that it puts out. Much... (laughs) And I, and I don't want to spend the kind of money that I have to spend to fill a tank. You know, sometimes when I was filling up tanks for my tractors and my truck, I'd go to a gas station and spend over $600 just on fuel. Um, and our agriculture equipment isn't electrified yet, but it's coming. Uh, so for right now, uh, I, I'm very happy doing little things like that. You know, minimizing the amount of products that we use. Uh, all those things take energy to produce. So, uh, you know, I, I love this image that, uh, that some people will not necessarily appreciate this, or maybe even have reasons to push back because of how our economy is based on consumption. But, you know, one of the things that I always talk to my wife about in a sort of half-joking way is, is I show her a picture of Gandhi's possessions when he died. and Gandhi had basically a pair of sandals, a pair of glasses, you know, his his article of clothing, and I think he might have had one book. I mean, but it's a it's a very small amount of things. and you know, Americans just take this stuff for granted. Turn off your computers, turn off those machines that have a little light on this waiting just to come on the next time you're ready to push a button. You know, there's just so many little things that we can do to conserve energy. Pick up, a, you know, get a, ride a bike. You know, riding a bike is actually good, you know, good for, uh, for our, our bodies. And we cut down on this consumption of fossil fuels. You know, the thing that really bugs me about Americans when it comes to conservation is is we're always looking for making sure the other guy reduces their pollution, their, you know, their carbon footprint or their pollution. Um, but there's so many things that we ourselves could do if we if we're just more aware.
0: And that's why I asked the way I did saying, what can we do as individuals? But yeah. speaking of the other side that I saw was very important to you when running for office and there's a couple of things with this. You ran for state assembly for one, yeah. but you also did try to run for Congress, which was right. great for your district. And re seeing some of the videos of debates and just everything going into that you used, I would say um, independent, truly independent. Cause that's been a talk of the news lately. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're just trying to hide from the Republicans or this side or that side or whatever. So you d- don't catch heat. But I'm truly, I would say I'm truly independent. But in some of those videos that I was watching with your uh, run, you referenced a quote that was pretty impactful. And I was familiar with my history background. And that quote was when it comes to government, us versus them. And you quoted President Reagan from like 86, I believe. I'm from hey. the government and I'm here to help. So obviously, I heard you were independent as well, but when you ran, you fell into the Democratic side. So when did you fully grasp, would you say, where you felt like you sat from a political spectrum there?
2: Well, let's let's clear up a few things. First of all, one has to recognize that the political parties are there for a reason. They create infrastructure that helps people to gain office. There are very few places in the United States today where an independent can run and, and get the kind of support that they need to actually win that election. In the, in the state of Vermont, for example, there's a large number of independents. Bernie Sanders was, of course, one of the more famous ones. But in California, where I ran, it are only 3% of voters voted for independent candidates. And so therefore, if I were going to announce my candidacy as an independent, I would have no basic infrastructure help. And it meant basically just spending my time throwing myself at the mountain without any real effect. And in my case, when I ran for Congress, I didn't run because I thought I was going to win. I ran because I felt that I needed to inject into the conversations the issue of money in politics and agriculture's role in climate change. And nobody else was talking about those things. So I knew that because I didn't have um, a uh demand to win i would have liked to have won of course but i didn't have the demand of myself that i should win i didn't feel that i needed to make the compromises i felt that i could talk to people with honesty with facts and with science and when i looked at the two parties from my side at least and i'm sure i'll alienate a few people but you know i can't i can i don't understand some of the conservative point of view some of the conservative issues So I don't even like politics per se. Let me make that really clear. I don't like politics, but what I believe in are human issues. What I believe in is I can see there are ways that uh, our communities, our humankind could actually make progress, and we're choosing not to, or we're being dissuaded not to. So uh, the quote that you uh, 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 were talking about was Ronald Reagan in a debate, and I think it was 1987, when he said the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, what he did in that case was an enormous disservice to us because he made it sound as if there's a difference between us and our government. Using the indefinite article of the rather than the possessive pronoun of our alienates our ownership of that and makes it sound like they're an independent body out with their own self-interest. But it is, in fact, the community self-interest, which is what government was supposed to be about. And of course, there are problems with government, always. Uh, If you look at Winston Churchill, he said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for all the others. And that's a really important distinction. And I think what's happened over the last 20 years, basically since, well, around 1994, we have become more and more partisan when the reality is, is that most people are like you and I that are in the middle, you know, Uh, but we know from our needs to raise money and the needs to find activists to assist us in our campaigns or in any of our efforts, that the most ideological voters are the ones who are twice as likely to give us money or twice as likely to take part in our campaign. Ergo, you find a lot of campaigns running to those extremes because they pull people apart and they pull resources to their campaigns. It's an artificial divide. It's an artificial, um, uh, you know, sort of hostility between idea sets. Uh, I thought it was interesting just recently when they passed this infrastructure bill, the 13 Republicans in the House voted for it. And in the Senate side, it was like 18 or 19, It it was, you know, more. But they're being pilloried by people saying they're helping the Democrats. Well, wait a second. I thought a safe bridge was helping all of us. I don't think that it had anything to do with your voter registration. And that's the sad part of what's 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 happening in politics today. So I got into it because I didn't feel that people were talking about the important issues because it's easier to duck and hide so that you make sure that you don't offend anybody or that you make sure that you're sending, you know, signals to people who are willing to pay to play. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of that that, that term, pay to play. Mm-hmm. And our, our government, because we have chosen an election system that's extended over a long period of time and requires individuals running for a public representative to seek the financing for their election through private individuals. That is a direct conflict of interest. It's kind of like, you know, asking the lakers to hire the referees for their game against the celtics you see what i mean Mm -hmm. you're you're you are prejudiced there's a there's a prejudice that comes in and it's not necessarily always the cynical thing that all politicians are corrupt i promise you that if i offered you a hundred dollars you would think better of me it's an intuitive sense of gratitude Every person on the planet will feel that if I help them in some capacity. That intuitive sense of gratitude ends up benefiting that person who gave that money by either access to our representative or favorable reviews of their criticisms or their ideas of a new legislative action. So we have set ourselves up under the guise of freedom of speech to create a severe prejudice or a pay-to-play system with our representatives. And honestly, the sad thing is, is that most of the people who are running today are good fundraisers, but they're not necessarily good public servants.
0: Exactly. And just, and I mean this respectfully, reminded me of, and I'm sure you saw the stories about him back in the day, Jesse Ventura being a true independent. And that I'm making that comparison is because of the campaign financing, which is a big deal, was a big deal for you. Yeah. But what you were saying about the folks fundraising and stuff, I can't, I should have wrote it down. It's my mistake where I actually read this, but it's mind boggling how much the cost for a seat in Congress can be, where it can be into the millions. And I don't think many people realize that, these Congress uh, folks, Republican, Democrat, whatever, can be on the phone over the first few hours of each day trying to raise money. But the percentage of those who actually donate is so small. So, you know, it's just mind boggling words. It goes back to what you're saying to pay to play and all that fun stuff. But I respect it that you weren't, taking, and you, maybe you can explain this more in depth than I can, the accepting of donations and campaign financing and such.
2: Yeah, I, it, it's there's a lot to this. And yes. And I try not to bore you with all these details, but it's really, really, really important to understand that our democracy is being fueled by resources from the wealthiest among us. Less than 10% of the population ever gives money to a campaign. Less than 1%, approximately 0.6% ever gives $200 or more to a campaign. And an even smaller amount are the primary funders of campaigns. So what you have in the country today is a population or a, 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 a voting public that feels cynical about the process. Because when we have representatives that go to vote on something, and you have the majority of the people who want to see action on that, and then our legislators don't take action or vote along with the wishes of their constituent, people then become cynical, they become disenfranchised, and they just don't feel like government works, which is why in our country, we have one of the lowest voter turnout records of any developed country in the world. And part of that comes from the fact that, If if I were to get a contribution to run for Congress, and by the way, to give you some basic ideas, these numbers may not be precisely correct, but they're approximately correct. To run for Congress, which is the seat in the House of Representatives, which is elected every two years, a person will have to raise more than $2 million. That means they have to be on the phone to raise approximately $2,500 every single day of their time in office. $2,500. $2,500. Now, how many people could you call right now and get money? I can't you know? think of a ton. Wouldn't right. A picture. You get a few, right? And so if you figure that, as, as I said earlier, approximately 0.6% of the population will give more than $200. And you've got to raise to, you know $2,500 a day and only 10% ever give money. So what a candidate does is they hire a company that gives them essentially what they call call sheets. They're a list of people who have given money in the past with their phone number, where they live, and their occupation, and how much money they've given in the past. And then that Congress person or that that candidate for office will get on the phone and you have to make at least 100 to 150 calls every day. The average person in Congress spends between 30 and 70% of their time not in their office, not in their constituency, but across the street in the Republican or Democratic national headquarters, dialing for dollars. Imagine that, over 50% of the time. If you went to work and you told your boss, listen, I gotta spend 50% of my time doing something else, your boss wouldn't, you know, would fire you. But that's the system that we have set up. So if only 10% ever even give money to a campaign, and you've got 100 to 150 calls, that means of those 100 people you're gonna call, one person's going to give you money. And out of that less than, well, only half of that number is going to give you $200 and you got to raise $2,500 a day. How do you do that? All of a sudden you become friends with the wealthiest people in our communities because it's disposable wealth for them, or you become friendly with big business that realizes that there is a 22,000 is about a Uh, let's see, about 22,000% return on their investment for investing in a campaign or investing in an issue with their own resources. That's a hell of a good return. But most of us can't afford to do that. So our democracy, amongst other things, is being hijacked by disposable wealth that influences either through social investing or through business investing to thwart advancements that we should be making as a community. Just recently, there was uh, uh, the unwillingness to pass uh, legislation that would allow our government to negotiate with drug companies for lower drug prices. And it was voted down. Why? Please tell me why. One word, money. Exactly. And you, you have to appropriate that concept to almost every issue that's out there. Most people don't realize that in Congress, There are approximately 10,000 bills introduced into Congress every session. And when I say bills, they're not all bills. Some of them are simply called resolutions. And those resolutions have no legal impact whatsoever. They are simply expressing the sentiments of that representative. And I'll give you an example. Our previous representative was a a woman, uh, um, uh, and she was a nurse in her private life before she became a, a, a representative so she would would commonly, this be uh, uh, Lois caps that's correct and Lois caps was was a nurse and so she used to pass resolutions not bills resolutions that would say celebrating the 100th anniversary of the new nurses union now there are probably about 85 percent of the bills that are introduced in congress are of that character why do they do that because every one of them has to make some kind of an impact in order to tell their constituents, look how hard I'm working. And so they will choose a demographic like that and write a bill that that sort of supports them. And under the same concept of gratitude that we talked about before, when a candidate gets money from somebody, the people then feel like they have been acknowledged. They feel grateful that the representative has recognized them and what they're doing in the world. And then they're more likely to vote for that representative in the future. But an enormous percentage of our resources in governance are being appropriated simply for the vanity reasons of showing your constituents that you've been working or for stroking some of the demographic that they want to vote for them in the future. So these are all reasons why we need to change this money in politics thing. We need to change the dynamic so that the emphasis is on the idea, not on the funds raised. 94% 94% of the time, whoever raises the most money wins. What I want to see is 94% of the time, the best ideas win.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we could spend all day on this particular topic, but with everything you said there, I want to include this as well before we move yeah. on. Is in terms of the influence of money, I yeah. believe somewhere I read there was like 28 states that had some kind of public financing for some elections yeah. and I believe the city of Seattle has some sort of ordinance when it comes to this stuff. So folks, I'm not, at least I only speak for myself. I, I'm, I i can not speak for bill here and obviously we are divided lately as a country and everything, but what you see on the news, please at least if I can express anything, do your homework and do some research before you make a logical decision on all these topics. Would you agree
2: with that? Of course. And I think you have to always go back to self-interest. Why is why do things work in this particular way? I'm really glad that you brought up campaign finance reform and I'm really glad that you brought up public financing of elections because it's very important. It's important to understand that once, you know, you know that concept of all of us pitching in to help pay for our governance regardless of your political stripe, is an important function of democracy, but it should be extended into the campaigns as well, so that when somebody is running for office, they're not then tempted to go to this large corporation or to the wealthiest social investor in their community to get the funding they need to be successful in their election campaign. It should be coming from all of us to have the kind of forum for ideas and the um, the discussion, uh, the debate should be around the ideas themselves, not these little sound bites that are simply dragging people through the mud and that really don't benefit. They're they're simply straw men or they're distractions, you know, to get away from the real issues.
0: And that's why I said that, folks. Please, besides the sound bites, at least try to do some reading on whatever the topic may be, whether it's finance or whatever the case is. When you're talking politics, try to do your homework so you have a full, can make a full rational decision. But before we move from the political spectrum to go into your acting career and such, I'm curious to know, I'd be reminisced not to mention this, but didn't get fully into it, would you? What was the legislation that you tried to help write and pass on to Congress
2: and such? Well, I have a bill that I've written for our, our congressman, Salud Carbajal. Um, it's called the Corporate Political Disclosure Act, and it is pending before Congress now. It's based on a, uh, the idea that corporations, after the Supreme Court ver- uh, uh, decision on C- Citizens United, if you remember that decision, it came out in 2010, which basically upended a lot of campaign finance rules that had been in place for about 100 years. And one of the things that, um, that did was it allowed corporations to use their general treasury funds for electioneering communications, okay? They cannot, they cannot give money directly to a candidate, but what they can do is support an organization that supports the candidate. And oftentimes, those two organizations are run essentially by the same person or by the same concepts. They're not independent. Uh, So for example, if let's just say that we had Jonathan Steele running for Congress in New Jersey, and I want to see you elected, if I don't work for your campaign, but you want to tell me a message, you can write something on your campaign website and basically says, I really looking for money on, uh, you know, this date that's going to help with this, this issue and blah, 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 blah. I can go on your website and read everything that you wanted me to do. And then I can incorporate those instructions as your independent body. You know, it's the, the, the line or the dividing line between working for your campaign and not being on your payroll, but working for your campaign is indistinct. It's, it's not there. And the Supreme Court was trying to split hairs and find ways to keep those items separate, but they're not. So a corporation can take their general treasury funds. Let's say that you are, um, you're, you are a stockholder in Amazon, right? You own a big stock of Amazon. That means those trend general treasury funds are partially yours, whatever percentage of the company you own. And let's say that Amazon decides that they want to elect um, you know, Hitler you know, for office and you have a, you're Jewish, you're vehemently opposed to Hitler being elected for office. That general corporation, or the corporation can take his general treasury funds and give money to an electionary communication to help elect Hitler and not tell you that they've done that. They're not obliged to tell you. So I wrote a bill because the Security and Exchange Commission, which regulates the behavior of companies, publicly traded companies, had up for public comment a rule that, uh, that required publicly traded companies to, um, to uh, disclose to their shareholders and to the public any monies given for electionary communications. And that was up for public comment. And 1.2 million people responded to that. Do you know anybody who's ever responded to the public rules on the Security Exchange Commission? I don't, but I was one of those people that, sub, that, that commented on that. Well, oddly enough, after all those people commented on it, the rule went away. It just just disappeared off the website. Nobody knows exactly where it went. But then suddenly in that December, in a must-pass omnibus spending bill that went before uh, President Obama, there was a rider put into the bill that said Congress forbids the and Exchange Commission from requiring publicly traded companies to disclose their campaign contributions or their collectionary communications. And that had to be signed by Barack Obama because it was a spending bill that had a certain deadline to it. That's how certain legislation gets passed. They sneak it in and the guy has no choice, whoever's signing the bill. So they actually use subterfuge to force the issue so that we can't even know whether or not our monies are being spent for things that we vehemently oppose. So it's, it's also a violation of our First Amendment rights. It's called negative speech. And I wrote the bill that requires corporations to actually disclose when they're giving money out for issues that we may not as shareholders uh, approve of because they're using part of our money. So that bill is sitting before Congress now. And I hope that it gets passed.
0: And I know this could be a whole different direction. And I was thinking about it because I was trying to explain with my limited knowledge of it within the passing of bills and such. But I was explaining to a family member recently that last I heard, and timeframes could change. And I know it changes depending on the topic. But if, say, President Biden, or something from all the way up top, Congress, Senate, all that stuff is decided on and passed. It might take several years for it to, with the, now I'll bring up Reagan again, the trickle down theory. It might take several years to affect you and I, even though we're like, oh, that's great. That, that topic may have passed, or that bill may have passed. But do you know why it would take so long for something to come from the top all the way down to the average citizen?
2: Yes, there are a variety of reasons. Sometimes they're engineered that way. So, uh, for example, I'm just going to use a more recent example. Uh, President Biden mandated that uh, companies over 100 employees had to be vaccinated, had to have you know a, a mandatory vaccination. Well, it's, he can put that out there, but now they have to write this. Book a manual essentially about how that's implemented, and does it conflict with any OSHA requirements? Does it conflict with any other federal requirements, et cetera, et cetera? So you have these scores of lawyers basically just, you know, going through the books and looking for conflicting stuff, so that if if the executive branch passes. A law or signs into law something that it's not in conflict with something else, and it just gets tripped up in the court and wastes even more time getting it passed. Another thing that happens is, is that it's very common to pass legislation that sunsets, if you know that term, you know what it means, a sunset a bill. It basically means: let's say I'm going to pass um, a tax bill, and I'm going to pass that bill as a Senate senator in the third year of my term. And I know that, you know, every other year, every two years, uh, there's going to be election of a certain number of people in the Senate. And I want to make this a campaign issue. So I pass a bill that I know needs to be passed right now, let's say for higher taxation, but then I artificially put a sunset date on it so that it starts to, so that legislation has to be brought up again before the next election. And there's two reasons for that. One is it creates a problem sometimes for the other side because they know something like taxes is not a, a legislation that people like. So it creates a, an albatross for the party who stands to gain for the next election. The other reason is, and this is also very common, going back to the money in politics thing is, is that they will pass legislation and then knowing that it sunsets, they will call up companies Let's say like uh, Federal Express, which has to compete with UPS uh, and the United States Postal Service and others and say, hey, you know, we've got this bill coming up on um, taxing, you know, uh, packaging, and we're going to need your help on this. And it's a kind of extortion for companies or for people interested in that legislation to give more money to make sure that when this bill comes up for its next vote, that they have the resources to elect people favorable to their issue. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they sunset something on purpose to effectively extort money out of a company or a, a, a demographic that would be affected by that legislation.
0: Well, well said. But let's jump on to the other side there, folks, with your acting. And yeah. obviously you, from what I had heard, wanted to get involved in the business as far as stunts. But what led you to go from stunts to, yeah, let me give this acting
2: thing a shot. Well, I grew up in the Midwest. And in Indiana, where I grew up, admitting that you thought that you could be an actor, a person of... A person acknowledged, a person of celebrity uh, character or something like that was kind of a, a hubris or a conceit that really doesn't fly well in the Bible Belt or in the Midwest where, you know, basically you're supposed to blend in. You're supposed to work 20 hours a day and brag about how little sleep you got and so forth and so on. So I didn't really know that that's what I wanted to do. I really had this interest in being a stunt driver and then maybe a stunt man. And I was fortunate that in my career, there were a couple of pictures where I got to do some of my own stunts, which was a lot of fun. Such as uh, Red Heat there? Well, not so much in Red Heat. I did a a horrible movie called Striker. It's a terrible movie. I hope nobody sees it. But uh, it (laughs) uh, it was kind of a Mad Max Road Warrior type of picture. And we were shooting it in the Philippines, and so I got to do all kinds of things where you know I was having fight scenes on top of moving trucks and uh, getting uh, uh, kicked off of a truck and and falling onto a moving car and you know things like that that were really that were a lot of fun. But I started off with the idea of being in stunts because I thought it was more palatable; it would be more acceptable to uh, sort of carve out a career like that. But as soon as I left home and got onto my own and really thought about it, I really decided that I, I wanted to to be uh, an actor.
0: Well, speaking of that, I know I'm kind of bouncing around with this, but recently, within the past several months, I know you signed on to a new project. So yeah. could you actually talk about that project?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, it's called Anomaly. Um, there's a very talented director named Terry Wickham, uh, who's an East Coast guy. I think he might even New York or New Jersey. He's right in right your neck of the woods. Uh, and the film is supposed to be filmed in Sandy hook actually. Mm. And it is a story of the paranormal and it has to do with these, um, ghosts from pirates in the past who sought refuge along the coast in places other than in big cities where they were being sought or hunted down or whatever, and, uh, they come back and visit on the local community. And I play uh, Captain Whitaker, who is someone who knows about their presence, but has been asked not to reveal my knowledge and experience of it because of, number one, it could adversely affect the economics of the town, but also because a lot of people just didn't believe in it. And so it was an interesting sort of character role for me to play, where externally my devotion to public safety is... You know the career choice, but I'm being stymied. I'm being uh, uh, stifled. I can't actually speak about something which I know would have an impact on public safety, because it would have a negative impact on the local economy, or people would look at me as if I'm nuts. So it creates this internal conflict that I thought was really interesting role to play, and it kind of uh, it played into something that I'd experienced lately when I is going back into. Uh, my running for public office. When I was asked to run for public uh, office in 2018 as a state assemblyman, I agreed to do so. But the other side spent over half a million dollars basically trashing me round the clock on tel- on on uh, television and radio saying what a bad person I was. And, um, you know, it was all false crap, but it injures you. It, it does injure you. And so there's a part of me which today doesn't want to go back and who, who would want to run for public office today under this kind of environment when you can still see that there are things that we could do to make things better. So I related to that role of the captain in, in Anomaly as someone who recognized that they had something to give, that they could see danger or see benefit, but were being suppressed that in this case by Captain Whitaker's choice, But also by the external interests that uh, that were hiring him, and I I I thought that was a really interesting character to play. So I'm hoping to get that in the uh, to film that this coming spring, and uh, I hope Terry uh, puts together the kind of film that that uh, you know is well. I know he'll do a great job, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that story told
0: exactly it looks like it's and i'm doing a little reading on it and it seems like it's going to be an interesting project but yeah. for something you said there and i'm not going to say this because you're sitting here and we've been talking via phone and email and whatnot to get this set up but i'd like to think in being from the philly area northeast and all got a pretty good bullshit detector and sniffer as i like to say and definitely think And hate to hear that people were trying to trash you just because of politics. Cause and a little bit I've dealt with you. I would say it's been a pretty good. I think you're a pretty stand up guy and I'm not saying that just to say that. So
2: thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I try, you know, I've been a big brother for over 40 years. I've spent a year and a half in Africa doing conservation work. I mean, I try to take, I try to put my, my ideas, my, um, I, I try to live my principles.
0: Yes. and But on the personal side there, and I'll get back to, and yes, folks, we will talk about Christine in a second. But like I said, there's just so much stuff and I found fascinating about Bill here. But one of the things, or two things I should say when it comes to, let me correct myself again. There's three things that stood out, non-political, non-acting, that was I found fascinating about you. One was... And if you could tell these stories, that'd be great. You climbed Kilimanjaro, you rode horses over in Magnolia for and Magnol. You rode horses over in a foreign country. I'm my tongue's Magnolia. Not working. Yes, Magnolia. thank you. My tongue is not working this morning. Yeah, but also you were involved because you said you like public service and trying to give back and being that big brother. I found it interesting that you were involved in the first all donated public library in africa so what got your interest to be able to travel abroad but also help people as well
2: well uh thank you for that question i really appreciate that because you know one of the things that i always found uh limiting about your role as an actor is is you uh, i don't really like hanging out with other actors honestly there's just so much attention, There's self interest, you know, Oh, what about me and me and me and me and I I just really don't care for that. But a lot of a a lot of your uh, the the wonderful things that come out of acting is that you start to your 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 job is to understand where somebody else is coming from. You know, Einstein said in a mathematical principle, he said that, because the point of zero depends upon the observer, there can be no true point of zero. So in other words, you know, for me, I'm I'm standing say uh, ten feet away from the fence, and you're twenty feet away from the fence. Both of our point of views are true. It doesn't mean that the fence is ten feet away. It means that there's a there's no true point of zero between the two of us. Does that make sense? Yes. And so, as an actor, one of your jobs is is to try to understand and to shed light on this particular person's view of the world of their experience, and so it develops compassion. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So as an actor, if you're really doing your job, you might play a serial killer, or as in my case with Christine, I'm playing a guy who's insecure and, and basically, you know, there's a variety of, of, of painful issues going on with him and they're acted out amongst his school buddies. and, but you have to play that character with empathy. You have to understand that, you understand what the pain is. So for me, acting gave me this great foundation of empathy and understanding. And once you have that understanding, and and we all have it within us if we allow it to come up, then you you make choices on a daily basis of whether or not you're going to help this person or whether you're going to ignore them. I mean, for example, if let's just say that you're in your car and you see a, a, a disabled person in a wheelchair struggling to cross the street do you sit there in your car and just watch them or do you get out of the car and help push them across the street and you you really have to kind of step up and live out your principles I think and so when I started seeing that there were things that I could do I went to Africa after stopping acting and I saw that there were things that I could do I went there because I wanted to help out and one of the things that I did there, I did a number of different projects, but one of the things that I did there was start the first all donated public library in Africa in, this, in the tiny community of Korkas, uh Namibia. I mean, this is a community that 85% unemployment, a very high level of alcoholism, and there wasn't a stitch of reading material to be found anywhere. I mean, most people in America don't recognize the amount of opportunity that we have just by our birthright. But if you're born in Kodakas, Namibia, and there's no secondary education, there's no vocational training school, there is really no real work. How do you improve yourself? How do you improve your situation in life? You know. And so for me, being able to help them at that time, they, you know they didn't even have an internet, right? I mean, look how much we use the internet every single day to advance our efforts and our interests and our economic status. But in places where they don't have, have an internet, they got to reinvent everything. They have to find a book, they have to ask somebody. It just takes way longer. So that inequality of our lives grows and grows and grows. So starting this library was a start back then because the internet was very in its infancy here, was an opportunity for people to actually get beyond the confines and of their limitations and growing up in a small place. And as for climbing Kilimanjaro, that was just a, That sounds like a cool thing to do, but it was informative also, to be honest, because I watched these guys, you know, in the, in the country of Tanzania, where Kilimanjaro resides, they have a law there that you have to use a guide to go to the top. There was too many people that would get into trouble on the mountain. And also it was a form of creating employment for them. I watched guys climbing Kilimanjaro in basically flip-flops. And I saw six guys sleeping in a tent. And then you have Americans with every Eddie Bauer prop, you know, every Eddie Bauer, you know, piece of merchandise they could to have their climb to be as comfortable as possible as they're going up. And you, you're, you're you're struck by the differences in these people's lives and opportunities. And then when you get to the top of Kilimanjaro, and you go, holy crap, there's no snow up here anymore. There's no glaciers. Global warming has has melted everything up here. Not everything, but a, a lot of it. And then again, you know, riding horses across Mongolia, great experience. You know, I, I actually had an opportunity to spend one day with a semi-nomadic uh, a tribe of people that were living in the mountains, and the the little kids had bow legs from not enough vitamin D, and they were standing outside in sort of wet, fifty degree weather, barefoot with shorts on holding handfuls of salt out to reindeer who they came in for the salt, and they grabbed them and milked them for their tea. I mean, these are empowering experiences for us because they they tend to show you how other people live. They develop empathy. You see a perspective, and you don't become so obnoxious and arrogant and thinking that everything should be your own way.
0: Yeah, exactly. But as we jump into a couple questions I do have for Christine, and I respect the time that you have given to me to have this conversation i wanted to say hello and i know you still have conversations with her but i was uh, exchanging messages with alexandra paul who we've had on the show before and i'll say this publicly because i've said this to her as well i was gonna see if she could jump on with us for a few minutes but that workout schedule wise mm-hmm. but the reason i respect alexandra as well and you notice just as well as i do because i know you guys uh keep in touch and at one point date it and stuff so you know her quite well she is what i like to say a deep thinker as well because she thinks beyond herself and thinks a lot about a lot of issues like you have described here so she said hello and you know always a lovely woman to talk to which is great
2: yeah alexandra is one of the most important people in my life and uh we dated, and uh, you know, wish that it could have worked out in the long run uh, with her, but it it didn't for our own reasons. And but we've still maintained a friendship and a respect. And um, she's one of the few people that I know that really tries to live her principles, you know, that really really makes an effort, you know. And so I'm a I'm a huge fan of hers.
0: So with that being said, Christine.
2: Yeah.
0: And I've heard. Well, first and foremost, let me ask with this. There you've been talking about doing a remake coming up here. Yeah. Would you have interest in being involved with it
2: if oh, hell that were yeah. the case? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. I, I would uh, I would like to play either Darnell or the detective in it that Harry Dean Stanton role played. Um, yeah, I would very much like to. I mean, Christine has been a tremendous gift to my life. And so um having an opportunity to to revisit that that story and uh play one of those other roles now that i'm on the other side of life if you will uh would be a great great flattering experience and uh, i i hope that they'll um they'll think of me and uh nothing else maybe they we'll do cameos or something but i really hope that i could play one of those other roles i believe that i can bring something to it now you know when i was doing christine it was you, you work so hard to try to bring this character to life. I mean, part of that's insecurity, but part of it is that you haven't lived a long time. But now having, having additional years under my belt and additional experiences, you don't have to work so hard to have those empathies or to understand those characters. You, know, you, you let all that life show.
0: Well, as someone who hasn't acted, and you bring up a good point there, Do you find it be easier for any type of role where you can bring that life experience with you to whatever you're hired for?
2: There's there's two sides to that question. Easier than the sense that I've got a bigger library from which to draw from. I've got a bigger pool of experience with which I can relate to something. But the downside is, is that when you have those experiences it's not so much the work of finding them, the, the work of bringing them to the front. It's sometimes at that point, the work or the pain of experiencing that, going through that again. Um, you know, one of the worst experiences I could imagine is doing like Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey in the Night every night on stage and taking yourself down into that, that place of depression and despair, you know, I mean, those are really taxing on your soul. You know, you, you, you try to forget those things. Your body tries to forget those things for a reason it's because they're unhealthy for you. So when you take on a role nowadays, um, you know, if it's, if it's something of a heavier, dramatic content or a traumatic event, it's not that it's more work or less work, it, it it's easier to access. But it's a different kind of work. It's a different kind of work to protect your heart, to to allow yourself to go to that place and then come back out of it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. But with Stephen King's popularity at the time, and he's Mm -hmm. still quite popular because he's had multiple stories made in the movies and everything. Yeah. But were you surprised that the film went into production before his book was even published?
2: You know, I don't, I haven't really given that much thought, but, you know, Stephen King was the, uh, he at that point in the early 80s, like that was, you know, he had Firestarter, he had Carrie, he had stuff that was happening that worked well. And he was a very prolific author and he was somebody that the masses really enjoyed reading. So he had a momentum and it's not surprising that they would try to find a way to harness economically that momentum. Uh, Momentums don't last forever, typically, you know? Uh, So I think they were trying to harvest that. I never really gave it a lot of thought, but I think it's, you know, it it was, I'm sure it was born out of uh, an economic desire to capitalize on the wave of popularity that they, they saw in his work.
0: Well, I heard you had a interesting conversation with him. And when I was doing some reading, I know you're not much of a car guy per se, but he told you uh, an interesting story about being only 5,000 of those cars made at the time. Right. But also during his story in Newsflash, I know that it's been 40 years or close to that at this point, but did you enjoy him embracing that heel side of your character and being able to kick the car's ass at the time?
2: (laughs) One of the most common questions I get when I do appearances is, you know, did did it it bother you to destroy that car? Well, no, it was really, really fun. I mean, how many times in your life have you been given license, free license to destroy (laughs) something without any consequences before or after? And in fact, you're being paid to do it. So in 1983, when we were making that movie and uh, somebody was asking me to destroy a vehicle, you have to first remember that the car wasn't valuable then. You know, it was just an old car and nobody, it didn't have the notoriety that it has today. So there wasn't any any misgivings about going about and doing that. And it was a, it was a lot of fun just to beat on something. I mean, it get out all that destructive energy. So uh, I, I didn't think twice about it.
0: And the other story that I went to bring up is I found it funny that you described in a couple of interviews you've done was the funny description that was on the script as far as talking about your character. Oh yeah. And, yeah. So could you tell that story? And at first I th- found it funny because you mentioned Carrie earlier when I first saw the movie as a little kid and God knows why my parents let me stay with horror from the time I was. Whole whole side note, my folks started letting let me watch Nightmare on Elm Street at like three and four years old because I had older cousins watching that stuff. So it's that's a whole nother deal. But when I first saw, you know, Christine is a little kid and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this to you, but with your hairstyle at the time, I almost thought you were a la John Travolta.
2: Yes, in fact, the very first picture that I did was a movie, uh, a not very good movie called Sunnyside, starring John Travolta's brother Joey. And for the first three weeks of the movie, half the crew thought I was Joey Travolta. Uh, so, yeah, it was a common comparison I had in those days. And of course, our hairstyles um, in the early '80s—you know, my hairstyle had a certain similarity to his characters in in Welcome Back, Cotter that that lo- sort of long, wavy-haired thing. But uh, there, somebody had taken a, an image of my character in Christine, Buddy Repperton, and at a certain angle, and then juxtaposed that with a picture of Jim Morrison. And I was struck by how similar we looked, uh, that I looked to Jim Morrison at that time. But uh, yes, I did get a lot of comparisons to John Travolta. And... Um, Uh, I don't know, you asked me something else in the beginning of that question. I forgot what it was now.
0: Uh, It was about the description. Oh,
2: the description of the script, yeah. So I got a call from Karen Ray, who's the casting director on on, uh, the movie. And I had auditioned for her a few weeks before that. And apparently I impressed her enough. She called me back for this. And normally when you, in the old days, at least when you went out for an audition, you met the casting director. And if the casting director felt that you were within you know, the possibility of playing this character from your look or energy or your talents or whatever, they would oftentimes then give you what they call sides, which are a portion out of the script or the entire script itself in order for you to read it, to have an understanding. And then they would tell you what scenes that you would be auditioning with in the script in front of the director. So she gave me the, the, the screenplay and she said, oh, I think you're perfect for the role of Buddy Reperton. And I thought, oh, well, great. Well, you know, when you think of yourself, your own self-image, you don't necessarily think of yourself as, you know, some horrible thing, right? So I'm thinking, oh, gee, she thinks I'm just right for this. So I get it. And in the script, they always or very commonly will give it a description of the character in the first scenes that they're in in the movie. And I'm paraphrasing, but the script read something to the effect of Buddy Reperton is tall and broad-shouldered. With a yank of dirty blonde hair tied back in a ponytail and a mean and stupid-looking face, (laughs) which I thought was hysterical. That you know, the casting director said that she thought I was perfect for this role, and he was described as having a mean and stupid-looking face.
0: (laughs) Well, I would joke because there's two words that come to mind, but I'm not going to say it uh, because I'd never interact with him, and I know I might offend some people, but so we'll leave that be. But to put a bow on this and thank you so much for the time, but where can people find you? Are you active much on social media? And two, because we, for the first portion of this, we talked some heavy duty real life stuff. Would there be anything you would recommend people to go and read, to do homework, try to, to educate themselves on whatever the case might be?
2: Well, boy, Yes. Uh, yes. Well, first of all, I don't do a lot of social media, uh, but, um, like most everybody else, you have a Facebook, uh, thing because I don't know, it's just the 21st century. Um, and, uh, my intent was to start a buddy Rapperton page because I used to get so many people asking me, are you the same guy? Are you the same guy? Are you the same guy? And I started one, but I never really promoted it or got it going a lot but you can find me on facebook under william ostrander um, and you can find uh, buddy Reperton page there but it, it it isn't fully developed and it needs to be and uh, all i can say is someday i'll get to that so uh yeah you know if you'd like to reach out i'm happy to hear from you i do appearances oftentimes around the country uh, at different types of comic-cons or um or or uh, monster mania type shows things like that. And I'm, I'm always happy to meet people that saw the picture and things like that, very flattered. Uh, as far as things that have to do with uh, community and our well-being, you know, really just develop your sense of compassion. And I could give you a long list of reading materials, but I don't know if that's really what my job should be. Only thing that I want to get people to do is to really understand how civics work better. And understand that it's our government, not the government, and realize that we have a pay-to-play system in place, and that we really need to change that through things called, you know, campaign finance reform, public financing of elections, where we take out the emphasis on an individual's subjective interest or the subjective interest of the individual, and replace that with the idea that benefits the community as a whole. And uh, uh, you know, uh, you you can find great information. Um, on uh, online on that, whether it's through um, the Center for um, oh, soup, uh, I suddenly just blanked on it. There's a uh, Center for Responsive Policy. It's a, it's a it's a money that it's a it's a website that all they do in a nonpartisan way is follow the money. Look for the money, and you'll understand why our representatives vote the way they do. And then just do stuff around home, you know, be get involved. You know, all politics is local, as they say. Be a big brother, be a big sister, plant a tree, find an electric car, drive an electric bike. Um, you know, just get out and be part of it. Try to make things better than when, when we when, when we leave, you know. Hopefully that the world's a little bit different or better, not not worse and more consumed.
0: And I'll say this again to put a bow on us: education is key. And yeah. make sure you can try to educate the next generation on. How things are supposed to work at least
2: right well yeah you know one of the things i really appreciate about this interview jonathan was that you took the time um to discover more of you know what my life has been about i mean my life wasn't about one film alone and it was a very important film for me and a very important part of my life but uh and, and i'm not looking for a platform to, you know a lot of people accuse actors of just you know being these people just sh- shut up and do your job I'm not talking to people on as a platform, as an actor, I'm just doing this as another human being, somebody else, you know, Uh, I I think we would all benefit from a little bit more compassionate, just understanding of one another and realize that everything isn't partisan and and it's not either heaven or hell, you know? So I appreciate that you went to the effort to find those things out and to discuss them on your show. So thank you for doing that.
0: And I appreciate you taking the time to have the in-depth conversation. And full disclosure for everybody hearing this, because I like to do that. What Bill just said there was key when we had our first conversation over the phone, talking about setting this up. So there was more than just one little project he did. Granted, the project has grown legs, but we wanted to have a full open discussion about some other things. So thank you, Bill.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate, it, John. Thanks very much. I wish you all the best for your show.
1: This brand is truly exciting. I'm so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne, and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, mother's day, father's day, and special seasonal gift sets. But also let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sent you.
2: I'm Alexandra Paul, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.